We are in Ephesians chapter 3 tonight, looking at the second half of that chapter as we consider Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, a prayer for strength to love more fully. We begin by looking at the prayer that Paul offered, and the first thing we notice is that it is a prayer that is offered purposefully. Ephesians 3.14, it says, for this reason, and the reason is that which precedes, and uh, I would uh, say that it really encompasses the full teaching of Ephesians 1 and 2, but this is a helpful comment that comes from Harold Honer's commentary. I quote, he had experienced that believing Jews and believing Gentiles become one new person. The body of Christ, positionally speaking, he now proceeds to pray that they'd be united experientially. He desired that they would experience the power of Christ's love in them and through them and their love for one another. So this is a prayer for us to love God and love others more fully. Secondly, it's a prayer that's offered with earnest desire and pleading. For it says in verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees. Uh, actually, it's not even referred to as a prayer. It's euphemistically referred to in this statement that he bows his knees. But the reason I stop and pause for, it says something about, about the prayer. Many years ago, I did a Sunday school class in which I studied the various positions that people take in offering up prayers to God, for example. And, and all these different positions have, have significance. They have a symbolism that's associated with it, such as standing to pray uh, symbolized the readiness to do what God had declared and revealed for us to do. So as we stand in prayer, we are, we're saying we're ready to receive our, our marching orders and we're ready to do the will of God. There is falling prostrate, actually falling flat on the ground with your face to the ground and offering prayers, which speaks of our utter helplessness. Uh, how we need to just throw ourselves onto the mercy and grace of God and have no hope apart from God's helping us and uh, coming to our aid. There is the lifting up of your eyes unto the Lord in prayer, which speaks of expectancy, an expectation that God is going to work and to move. I will lift up my eyes unto the hills, from whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. The psalmist says that, uh, well, I won't go into all the, these examples, but uh, to lift up your eyes is a way of demonstrating expectation. And to bow one's head speaks of humility and reverence, uh, giving proper respect and honor and glory to God. Bowing the knees is a position of great need. It's 
to beg, it's to plead. A, a, a recognition that, that we really desire this to take place. And so Paul bows his knees. He's, he's pleading with God. He's begging with God for God to grant this particular prayer. Uh, as I've, when uh, years ago, I, I used to adopt those different positions in prayer. And, and, you know, I would say to you sometime when you're alone, uh, I wouldn't do it in public, but, you know, in your own bedroom or your office or wherever you're by yourself, uh, I find it meaningful to, to enter into prayer with different um, positions. Uh, I can't get on a floor and get up anymore, uh, so I don't do that, but uh, I, I think it's, it's meaningful. And one of those applications that, that uh, I've stayed with for years, and people may wonder, uh, if you notice when I pray, I pray with my eyes open, and that really kind of shocks some people, and I can tell they're kind of uneasy when I'm praying, and all of a sudden their eyes meet mine, and all of a sudden their head drops, and they're, they're closing their eyes, because they were caught, I guess, but... Uh, uh, people feel uneasy, but I just found, for me, that has made prayer so much more meaningful. It, uh, it reminds me that I'm speaking not into the air. I'm, I'm not just closing my eyes and having wishful thinking. There's nothing wrong with closing your eyes. Uh, you get that, right? And, and uh, I realize that there's value in that as well. But for me, it just reminds me that I am talking to a living being. I'm talking to God. And I am addressing a God who hears and a God who answers. Well, Paul bows his knees with this great expectation for God. It is a prayer that is offered to God the Father as the creator God. For it says in verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. But uh, I, I think that the Father in the sense of creator for Number one, Father, in the sense that God has created us. For it tells us in the next verse, it gives us the context, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. It goes on to say in Ephesians 4, 6, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. It's one more argument that God is over both the Jew and the Gentile, and that he desires both to come together all families of the earth belong to God. He is not the father of the Jews only, but he's the father of all of his creation. And God has a purpose for all that he creates, including all peoples. For it tells us in verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named is named. There is a lot of informing theology that goes into God naming. Uh, God even gave the responsibility uh, to Adam. After um, Adam was created in the image likeness of God, he was to name all the animals. When it talks about God giving a name to them, it isn't just simply, you know, Mary and Beth or, or Mike or Rick or what have you, but it, it's really talking about a delineation. It, 
It's talking about a purpose. It's talking about a definition for an individual that God designates each and every person with gifts, with abilities. Uh, He has named them. He has chosen them. He has ordained them. He is directing them. And it refers to all of creation. So Psalm 147 verse 4 says, He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. That he is directing their light. He is causing them to to shine in the way that he wants them to shine with a different kind of brilliance, each one, each individual star. God in his wisdom and power gives meaning and purpose to what he creates. Isaiah chapter 40. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. Here is this aspect again that that God has created, God has made, and he calls them each by name. So in this prayer, as Paul is praying for the Ephesians, he is saying that he is praying to God the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, without exception. Secondly, the petition of the prayer. It's a prayer for spiritual fortitude. For it says in verse 16 that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant to you to be strengthened with power. To be strengthened with power. Uh, to be strengthened with power is to be given the ability to continue on, to persevere, to steadfastly see through a work that is done, that we do not become so weary that we stop, that we can't go on, that we, we are not able to finish what we have begun. But rather, this is a strengthening that endures. This morning, we looked at First uh, Kings chapter 2, where David admonishes Solomon and tells him to be strong to show himself a man. And the idea again was to persevere, to to continue on. And we see that this morning that Solomon didn't do that. But Paul wants us to continue on. And in particular, in the passage, it's this continue on in love for one another. That we don't allow that love to wane. That we don't allow it to wax old. That we don't give up. That we're not discouraged by that which we encounter And we say, I've had it, I quit, I'm not going to love any longer. But that we would be given this strength, this power to continue on. It's a strength that comes from the Holy Spirit. Through his spirit. And this fear of strengthening is in our hearts and minds. For it says in verse 16, according to the riches of his glory, that you 
that may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. He's not talking about growing muscles, but he's talking about this, this inward character of life. Definition of the inner being or the inner man, John Eady in his Greek text commentaries writes, the inner man is that portion of our nature which is not cognizable by the senses. It does not consist of nerve, muscle, and organic form as does outer man. It's our thoughts. It's our emotions. In Romans, the inner man is identified as the mind, and that seems to be the biggest emphasis in the scriptures. Romans 7, 22 and 23, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging a war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So this inner being is uh, likened unto our mind. It is our thoughts. It is our resolves. The body of flesh is seen to promote natural impulses that motivate actions. Ephesians 2, we've already looked at this passage in weeks gone by, which read, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. It's, it's talking about these fleshly desires, meaning that which are mere impulses, like a brute beast, a, a brute animal that functions based on its desires, its, its hungers, its, its thirsts, its sexual motivations. But we are not to be people that are governed by such primal urges, but we're to be governed by our mind. We are to make decisions that are going to be appropriate and bring honor and glory to God. We aren't simply to make decisions based on what feels right. We don't serve God by our instinct or instinctively. But our obedience and faith to God is a rational trust in God. We have reason to believe. We have reason to hope. We have reason to pray. And we must use our reason in guarding and guiding and making the decisions in our lives. Number four, the mind or inner man of the believer produces thoughtful decisions that the mind of, excuse me, the mind or inner man of the believer produces thoughtful decisions that govern our actions in keeping with our knowledge of Christ so that we make decisions based not on how we feel but on what we, we know to be right what we know to be right. This is an important lesson on learning how to pray and what to pray for. I remember talking to someone who doesn't go to our church, but uh, they were in a relationship that, that wasn't a Christ-honoring one, and, and they were talking to me about it, and they said, you know, I, I, I repeatedly asked God to take away this desire. But he hasn't. So it must be okay. And I said, well, it's not okay. And I said, you can't 
just simply ask God to take away that desire or ipso facto, it's, it's okay. No, we, we have a responsibility. And there are times that we need to do things that we don't feel like doing. And let me just tell you, that's not hypocritical. It's hypocritical if we say, oh, this is what I love to do and I can't wait to do anything else. That's hypocritical. But it's not a hypocrite to go against what you feel. And let me tell you that we can control our emotions a lot more than what we think we can. Have you ever been in the situation in which, because I've been there, I can tell you, when I've been heated against my wife and I've raised my voice and all of a sudden the phone rings and I pick it up and I can be very pleasant. I can have a nice, calm voice as I'm talking on the phone. There is no reason that I would not have had that nice, calm voice with my spouse. She deserves better. That's a choice that we make. That we don't allow our emotions to just dictate how we live. Number five, in Corinthians, the outer and inner man are contrasted. The outer man decays and grows old. For 2 Corinthians 4.16, so we do not lose our heart. Our outward self is wasting our way. But the inner man, B, is constantly being refreshed, like a refresh icon on a computer. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. I alluded to that a little bit this morning with this aspect that as we grow older, we, we physically decline. But there is not a need to spiritually decline. We can actually be renewed day by day. We were in Isaiah chapter 40. There, there's a wonderful portion in Isaiah chapter 40. It says, has, has thou not known, has thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the heavens and the earth, faints not, neither is weary. Goes on to say, even the youths, Y-O-U-T-H-S, even the youths will faint and be weary. And the word for youth there is actually a military term for young cadets that are in great shape. But even those people that are incredibly conditioned, good athletes that are in shape, will eventually tire. There is a limit to what they are able to do. But even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. They can continue on. Wings like eagles. You know, you see those beautiful birds soaring in the air. And they just ride the currents. They don't even flap their wings. And those Currents uphold them and they continue to, to fly. Well, this passage is teaching us that there is 
a spiritual strength that God can impart to us and that we desperately need. Desperately need. And so Paul is praying for that. Number six, in Ephesians, the mind is to be renewed in its purpose to God and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Number seven, in Romans, the mind is seen as the agent of transformation in our lives. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. To be conformed to this world, uh, it's the aspect of being pressured into uh, conformity. We talk about peer pressure. We talk about outward forces to be at work. But what's to combat that? Well, it's the transformation that takes place by the renewal of the mind, by a changing of one's thoughts, one's purposes, one's ambitions, one's aspirations. In Ephesians, there's a stark contrast of our minds before we were saved and after we're saved. Ephesians 4, 17 to 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. Uh, that is just operating by the senses. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But this is not the way you learned Christ. Isn't that a, an interesting phraseology? This is not the way you learned Christ. Not, this is not the way that you responded to Christ. This is, this is not what Christ taught you. This is not what you heard about Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So this strength is a strength of our resolve, the application. Paul prays that inner resolves to follow God would be reinforced, that we'd be more resistant to our fallen desires, less affected by the outside pressures around us, and more resolute to follow through on what we have learned from and know about Christ and thus have purpose in our minds to do. This morning, I asked people to make a commitment to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and to live their lives to his honor and glory. I did not ask anyone to raise their hand if they were ready to make such a commitment. Because I, in my experience of growing up, uh, that can be very misleading. I do think it's important that we each make that commitment at some point in time in our life. But it's got to be renewed daily. You can't make a commitment once and for all. It's like, if you will, our wedding vows to love our spouses. We have to love them 
repeatedly. We have to love them daily. We have to love them constantly. And that love should grow. It should increase. And so should our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. As we daily are strengthened, daily nourished, daily encouraged, it's a matter of building ourselves up. Just as a runner is going to run more and more. I know it's hard for you to imagine, but there was a time that I could run 20 miles. And I didn't start by running 20 miles. I had to work up to it. And we have to build ourselves up. But it's, it's not by spiritual weightlifting. It's by relying upon God and asking him to strengthen us by his spirit. For D, the strengthening is a matter of Christ taking up a personal residence in our hearts and minds through faith so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. It is the abiding presence of Christ that is experienced by means of faith. As Christ is firmly planted in our hearts and minds through faith, he produces a love within us. It is Christ in our hearts that is the source of our love for others. For so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted, and that rooted is rooted in Christ. And being rooted in Christ means you're, you're grounded in love. You have fertile soil. You have the, the nutrients that you need in order to produce fruit. You know, there, there are certain soils that are void of the proper nutrients, and so you know, farmers have to fertilize their fields in order to really get a decent crop for the soils are lacking. But if you are rooted in Christ, you have the source for the nutrients that you need. You have fertile soil. You will produce fruit. You will grow. You will be conformed more and more to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's going back to our commitment to Christ. It's, it's always about Christ. And there is a tremendous temptation that Paul talks about in the book of Galatians. Oh, foolish Galatians, you have, who have begun in faith, are you now made perfect by the flesh? There is this tendency to try to reform us, transform ourselves by our resolutions, by our commitments. Ultimately, it's Christ at work in us, and we have to constantly ask Christ to renew that commitment in our own hearts and minds, to keep us wanting and desiring the things that would honor and glorify him. And so Paul then prays that the Ephesians would have the ability to understand what is the immeasurable love of Christ and may have strength to comprehend. This is a different word for strength. It's the strength to be able to, to understand, to be able to understand. There, this is a prayer that's appropriate and needed for all believers. May have strength to comprehend with all the saints it is a prayer to be able to grasp the full measure of Christ's love. Verse 18, 
may have strength to comprehend with the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth. It is a prayer that we would know fully what cannot be fully known. I'm taking this all together and I'm going to stop and unpack it together. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. It's a word picture of the inability to get our hands completely around something. So when you think of comprehend, I love word pictures. Comprehend is a word picture. For the basis, for the root of to comprehend, you think of what is comprehensive. It is that which surrounds everything. Okay? Uh, when uh, I think of this aspect of to be able to grasp, to be able to comprehend everything, I think of the word picture when I was little. My, my dad had huge hands because he was a farmer, and for many of the years that he farmed, uh, he farmed before there were milking machines, and he would, you know, be milking by hand. And at one point, he was milking 30 cows by hand. You know, uh, people use those uh, squeegee things to, to build up their hands. Well, my dad was milking cows twice a day, 30 cows by hand. He had huge hands. And his hands would just absolutely engulf mine. And when I was little, I would hold on to his little finger. We'd be walking along. He wasn't holding my hand. I was holding on to his little finger, and I couldn't get my whole hand around his little finger. I couldn't grasp it. I couldn't embrace it fully. And this is this aspect of Christ's love for us that, that we can't fully grasp it. So I'm now on page six, number three. We cannot know the love of God exhaustively, but we can know the love of God partially. And furthermore, what we can know in part, we can know accurately and usefully. I throw this in because of a philosophical argument uh, that, that you'll run into in college if you study epistemology and all these other things. And, and there's a whole debate about if, if you cannot know it fully, can you know it at all? And if you cannot know it fully, can you know it accurately? And there are just many examples, and I've chosen uh, just a couple here to, to help you see that to know in part is indeed valuable. For an illustration, think of the difference between a foot ruler and a yardstick and a yardstick and a 50-foot tape measure. You see, a, a, a foot ruler is accurate, it's useful, it's valuable, you know, to measure this much. You can rely upon it, but it's limited. A yardstick can give you much more information. It's much more valuable, much more useful. Then the 50-foot tape measure is even of greater value and greater use. And then I have here, but you can't use a 50-foot tape measure to, to measure the mountains. 
They're too high for that. So Paul is praying that we might understand the, the heights, the depths, the wits of God's love, which he says are immeasurable. You can't do it with a foot ruler. You, you can't do it with a yardstick. You can't do it with a 50-foot tape measure. In fact, we don't have a tool that can do it. It's incomprehensible. But we can grow in our understanding of that love. We can increase in our awareness of that love. So number six, so too our knowledge of the love of Christ can grow incrementally, but we are still unable to measure that love fully. That's why he says that he prays this prayer for all the saints. For we're all in need of growing in the knowledge of God's love for us and our love for others. Wherever we have obtained, we haven't attained full and complete knowledge. Jay, the ultimate purpose of knowing and experiencing this love is so that we would conduct ourselves in a more godly manner. The goal is to be manifest the complete likeness of God. Ephesians 3.19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Jesus is the very embodiment of God, Colossians 2.9. For him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus said um, in John 14.9, if you read the bold part, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. The goal is that when people see us, they see Christ. That's the goal of this, this knowledge of the love of God and, and, and this experiential relationship to the love of Christ that we would conduct ourselves and that we would act in such a way that we really portray Jesus. You know, we have heard that phrase, what would Jesus do? Wouldn't it be wonderful if people knew the answer to that by just observing us? That Jesus would respond the way that we respond? That Jesus conducts himself the way that which we conduct ourselves because of our likeness with Christ? Which is the book of Romans that we are to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. The goal is that when people see us, they see Christ. Number two, the fact that the goal cannot be completely reached is expressed in the subjunctive mood. Ephesians 3.19 to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled. That phrase, you may be filled, is a subjunctive, which means it's contrary to fact. You can never, ever obtain that goal in this lifetime. When we are in his presence, we will be like him. We shall know him fully, even as we are fully known. It's mind-boggling. And I don't even know what all that means. But Paul says in that very same passage, but now we behold him in a glass darkly. King James language. Um, 
a mirror that is hard to see. In those days, mirrors most often were made out of polished metal. They would show you your form, but they wouldn't show you the clarity what a, a mirror would be today. In other words, we, 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 see, we see and understand, but extremely limited, an extremely limited way. But there's going to come a time which we're going to know fully. Paul's praying that we would know more and more of this knowledge of, of God's love. On to page 7. The point is, just as we cannot fully know the love of Christ, so too we cannot fully express that love to others. You see, our love for others is contingent upon our understanding of the love of Christ. However, the better we know and experience the love of Christ, the better we can express that love to others, demonstrating the work of God in our lives. I don't know. Have, have you ever heard the phrase that somebody is so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good? That's bonkers. That's just bonkers. Colossians says that we are to be heavenly minded. The person who is truly spiritual, the person who is really desiring this, this deep and intimate relationship with God, through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by faith is, is seeking this intimacy, is going to be a wonderful person to be around. For they're going to be behaving and acting and conducting themselves more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ because of the work of the Spirit of God. We're going to get to Ephesians, uh, Ephesians 5, Shortly, it says, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It is a transforming power. Galatians tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, or self-control. It says, against which there is no law, meaning that you can't pass a rule to bring about those characteristics. You can't dictate. You can't say to your children, from now on, we're going to be loving, we're going to be kind, we're going to be gracious, and you're going to act that way, I'm going to act that way, and this is the way we're going to act. It says, against such there is no law. You, you can't obtain it by a rule. You've got to obtain it by the Spirit of God, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, gentleness. You want to change your life? You're tired of that angered response? Pray. Pray that the Spirit of God would enable you to have a different response as you purpose in your heart and mind, I'm going to respond differently. I'm not going to act that way. And believe that God will give you the ability, not that you never feel that way, but you're able to conquer that desire. You're able to conquer that reaction. And you just simply don't do that. 
And as you grow in grace and knowledge, yes, yes, then our, then our responses do change and even our emotions change. Number five. We should never stop or give up in our pursuit of the full knowledge of God's love or the full expression of it. Just because we can't get there doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. Just because it's unobtainable doesn't mean that it isn't worth pursuing. For we're able to make progress. We're able to move farther down the line. We're able to get closer to the mark. And no matter how far we have arrived, there's still more for us to go. Which brings us to the doxology. God is praised because God has the power, capability, ability to do way beyond what we can even dream of, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. God is able to do more than what we pray for, abundantly more than we all that we ask. Our prayers are little. Our prayers fall short. Our, our, our prayers, it doesn't even come into mind how we should be praying for our spiritual development and growth. He's able to do far more than what we ask. Live big. Ask big. Want a deeper, fuller relationship to Jesus Christ. He's able to exceed the abundant more above what we ask. Or, number two, we can even imagine or comprehend who's able to do abundantly more than all we ask and abundantly more than we think. We think. Sometimes we don't expect enough from ourselves. Sometimes we don't think we can change. Sometimes we don't think our spouses can change. We don't think our children can change. We buy into the philosophy of the world who basically says, you are who you are. You just have to learn to appreciate who you are. Because you can't change. And the behavioral needs are just identified. They're, they're just named, and that's who you are, and that's what you struggle with, and that's who and what you are, and you always will be. The child of God believes that God can transform us. A Saul can become a Paul. A persecutor of the church can be an advocate for the church. You know, there's the list of sins in 1 Corinthians, and I won't go over them, but drunkenness and all these things. And it says, and such were some of you, but, but. You know, if we would spend time tonight 
It would be a wonderful exercise for people just to share what they have been delivered from. How God has done a work in their hearts and minds that has made them into a totally different person. Like a soul to a palm. Don't limit what God can do in your life. Don't give up in the pursuit of godliness and righteousness and holiness. For our God is able. He is able. B, God is able to do way beyond what we can dream of as he works in us and through us. Verse 20, it says, according to the power that works in us, it's the power that raised Jesus from the dead, going all the way back to Ephesians 1.19. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead? Then we saw in chapter 2 how we were dead in our trespasses and sins. There, probably, if you were older when you were saved, but even if you were a child, I was saved extremely, at an extremely young age, but there were changes that took place in, in your heart and your mind when, when you came to Christ. This is a doctrine of progressive sanctification, which simply means those changes can continue to occur. They can continue to increase. We are not doomed to be who we are today. There is this need to represent, I'm not what I once was. And I'm not what I will be. But we praise God that we are what we once were, and we are not going to be satisfied with who we are this day. But we're going to continue on. We're going to pray. We're going to, we're going to persevere. We are going to continue to ask God to bring about these changes in our life that is accomplished by his spirit and his spirit alone. <coughs> and see, <coughs> God, will <rec> God will receive and be praised in, by, and through his church. Ephesians 3.21. To him be glory in the church. God will be praised for in Christ that the church is able to bring glory to God in, to whom be glory in the church in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever and amen. And God will be praised with an everlasting praise throughout all generations. It doesn't stop for God's grace continues on. It's not exhausted at any time, any place. So conclusion. First, we should never be satisfied with our spiritual attainments. God is able to do so much more. We should not be satisfied with our knowledge about God, and we should not be satisfied with our experience with God. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness. As the deer panteth after the water brook, so pants my heart after thee, O God. Don't you wish you knew God better? Don't you wish that some of those nagging doubts would go away? 
don't you wish that you wouldn't question experiences that you've had, and troubles that you experience, and wonder about God's faithfulness? Oh, the joy and the delight of knowing him better. It's a life pursuit. It's a life pursuit. A poor analogy. But anybody who's been married for a long time knows their spouse a whole lot better today than when they were first married. I was married over 40 years ago. I loved my wife. I made promises to her, and I was delighted that she's my wife. I was just talking to Dave Ritchie before the service, and we were talking about as, sorry for pointing you out by name, brother, but we were talking about our spouses, and how it would be tough to not have them. It would be devastating. Our love has grown. Our knowledge has grown. The appreciation has grown. The comfort has grown. The intimacy has grown. That's what we want with God. That's what we need to ask for. That's what we need to get on our, our knees and beg for. To understand the heights and the depth and the breadth, the width of the love of God, which is unknowable. Well, I want to know more of it. And we can. Let's pray. Our Father, help us. Help us to want to know more of you and experience more of you. And may we understand the importance of faith and not just trying to reform our lives, but to plead with you to bring that transforming power of Christ to work in us. That our obedience is not outward, but our obedience stems from the heart. It's inward. It's it's because we really want to do that which is pleasing and honoring and glorifying to you because you've given us a different outlook. You've, you've given us a different goal in our living. We want to be like Christ. Help us, O oh Lord, help us. Give us of your spirit. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.